Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. It's good to be with your people. It's good that you are a gracious God, that you look beyond all our faults and saw our need. We thank you this morning, Father. We just pray that as we study your word this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, minister to us, teach us, build us up, guide us, and direct us. And may we leave this place more excited about living for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just quickly to review, Paul and Silvanus, who was also known as Silas, but isn't Silvanus a cool name, uh, and Timothy were the founding fathers of the church in Thessalonica. Uh, they were unable to remain there uh, because their preaching stirred up the Jews who didn't like them preaching Jesus. So they were only there for a short time, and um, they were forced to leave. So Paul and his colleagues were anxious to learn about what was happening in the little church in Thessalonica. So Paul was unable to go, so he sent Timothy back to assist the fledgling congregation and report back regarding the situation. Well, Timothy had brought back a good report, uh, which Paul received with, with gladness. He was so excited. But Timothy's report also mentioned some problems that this young church was having, and there were some concerns there. So in writing his letter, Paul is in part writing to perfect that which was lacking in the faith of the Christians in Thessalonica. Chapter 4 is where we are, and it provides significant clues to the problems that Timothy found there. There were some moral issues that we talked about the last time I spoke, uh, particularly sexual immorality. There, the uh, Christians loved one another, but they were kind of sticking to their own group, and Paul urged them to love all the brothers that were in Macedonia. He encouraged them to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life because there were some busybodies in the church and to do your own business, tend to your own business. He asked them to work with their hands even as we instructed you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and may have need of nothing. The reason he urged them to do that was because there were some well-to-do Christians in this church and there were some other folks who thought it was easier to mooch off of them than to do their own thing and, and to make their own way. And so Paul encouraged them to work with their own hands, that they may uh, lack nothing. That brings us to the text of today, and the fourth problem that the church had, uh, and Paul's answer to it. At least one believer, perhaps several, had died in Thessalonica. And at that time, everybody was looking for the imminent return of Jesus. And perhaps that caused concern among those, amongst those believers. They were wondering about those who died while waiting for Jesus' return. Uh, were they going to miss out on anything? Uh, will they participate with the living believers in the joy of the second coming? Or has death somehow disqualified them? So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep. Paul says, I, I don't want you to be ignorant, suggesting that he's breaking new ground here, that he didn't teach the Thessalonian Christians what would happen uh, to the believers who passed away while waiting for Jesus to return. Keep in mind now that Paul was only able to stay there for three Sabbaths, probably not even three complete weeks. It's in Acts chapter 17 if you want to read about that. The amazing thing is that he was able to establish a viable church 
in that short of time. It's understandable that he failed to teach them, these new Christians, the whole body of Christian doctrine, because for one thing, that doctrine was in the process of being formed. This is one of Paul's first letters. Uh, I think Galatians is the only letter that's older than this. And it was about 52 A.D., if my memory serves me correctly. So Paul is learning as he goes what he needs to do as a pastor of these churches, and he's learning what problems exist and how to address them. That phrase, fallen asleep, in the verse we just read is a euphemism. It's a milder substitute for death. The substitution of sleep for death was quite common both in the scriptures and in the literature of that day in secular literature. You can find examples of it in the Bible in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, in Matthew 27, 52, Mark chapter 5, verse 39 and 42. So Paul here says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. This is not a call for us to forego grieving or the grieving process. Even if we firmly believe in the resurrection of the dead, the dead, death of a loved one deprives us of his or her company. So grief is a natural and appropriate part of that process. We might also grieve at the thought of a, a life cut short. We might grieve because a loved one had a particularly uh, um, difficult death. We need to be careful to respect the grieving process and not to deny it. Paul is not saying that at all. He isn't suggesting that Christians shouldn't grieve, but rather that we shouldn't grieve like the rest who have no hope. While some Gentiles believed in life after death, the Christian faith in the resurrection went far beyond the standard Greek or Roman system. Let's look at this next part here where he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Now this is one of those places where little words mean a lot. The little Greek word for for is a word called gar, and it connects the phrase with verse 13. The reason that Christians don't grieve like the rest who have no hope, in verse 13, is that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Also note the little word if. The word if often sets up an if-then situation. If a certain thing is true, then this. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, then it follows another thing is also true. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. While we don't find the word then in that verse exactly in verse 14, the phrase even so is a word called hutos, and it's the functional equivalent. Christ's death and resurrection constitute the central belief of the Christian faith. Belief in the resurrection, both in Christ's resurrection and the general resurrection of believers in the last days, is foundational to the Christian faith. Everywhere, uh, elsewhere, I mean, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith also is in vain. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, if you want to look it up. The New Testament includes a number of accounts of people who saw the resurrected Jesus. There's an account in Matthew 28, 9, chapter 16, verse 20. In Mark 16, 14 through 18, Luke 24, John 20. Uh, there's several there in John. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, uh, verse 5 through 7. And most of these accounts... It, was, it wasn't just one person who saw the resurrected Christ. It was multiple people. And in one instance particularly that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Jesus was seen of over 500 people. 
Think about that. Especially important is the fact that Paul had experienced the risen Savior personally on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. You can read about that. An experience that turned Paul from the church's chief persecutor to its chief apostle. As an apostle, we know that Paul suffered beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, and a host of other miseries. He was beaten and thrown in jail and everything else, snake bit, lost at sea. And Paul's willingness to endure all that suffering only makes sense if, in fact, he had experienced the risen Christ personally. You know, it wouldn't be, it just would not make sense that he would go through all of that for something he hadn't personally witnessed and seen. Jesus promised his disciples an eternal home, saying, In my house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. That's in John chapter 14. Let's look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Next slide, please. Here's kind of a small timeline of the events that we're talking about here. And there's some confusion, and a lot of folks don't understand that the church age was from Pentecost until this rapture event that we're talking about today. And then while the Christians are raptured, this, this little scale shows you that that's when the Christians will go before the judgment seat of Christ during the seven-year tribulation. And that is only the first phase of Jesus' return to earth. He's not physically returning at the rapture. He's coming in the air. But when he comes back at the end of the tribulation, he will set feet on the ground. With He's coming back with the church. And at that point, he will establish his kingdom for the, for the millennial reign. Just want to throw that in there. So Paul, in this scripture I just read, you can flip the next slide too. I think he went backwards instead of forward. Paul is saying, uh, we, we read this scripture in verse 15. He says, for we say this to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is saying, this is not my teaching. I, I didn't make this up, this thing about this rapture thing. Paul directly addresses the concern of the Christians in Thessalonica about their deceased brothers and sisters. And he says, no, they will not be disadvantaged. All the faithful dead and alive will be equally advantaged when Jesus returns. The next part there is saying, Paul is not only saying, I didn't make this up, the Lord is saying that this is what he's going to do. Then he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Paul uses two different words when he's talking about God, the Father, and Jesus. The Greek word that he uses for the Father is theos, and when he talks about Jesus, it's a word called, I'll probably say this wrong, kyrios which is Lord, to speak of Jesus. In this verse, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus to save the faithful from what's about to happen on this earth. The tribulation period when the Antichrist will rise to power, when there will be horrible judgments poured out upon this earth. And I know that's scary from some people. Some people don't like to talk about prophecy, but 
prophecy is about 28% of the Bible. It's almost a third of the Bible. So we do need to study it and we do need to learn about it. Paul says the Lord himself will descend. He's not sending Michael or Gabriel or some other angel to get the church. He's coming himself. He's coming to get what he paid for. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. The word that, that is in the old language for shout there is a word called keluzma. And it was used by commanders to urge on their troops. It was used by coaches to urge on their teams. Uh, the keluzma shout is intended to encourage. It has also the ring of authority with it. The ring, uh, the authority of command. So the Lord himself is coming back. He's going to descend with a shout. And the next part says, with the voice of the archangel. The voice of the archangel will announce Christ's coming. Is a voice intended to command attention. And thirdly, with the trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, the shofar trumpet was crafted from the horn of a sacrificial lamb. And it was used for several different purposes. It was used to announce the Sabbath uh, and other religious observances. It was used to call soldiers to battle and to warn people of impending danger. And if you'll remember in, in uh, Moses' day at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, the trumpet was one of the four signs that, that alerted people to the presence of God. There were three other signs, which were thunderings, lightning, and smoke on, on the mountain. So he's the Lord himself is coming back. He's descending with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. In the New Testament, trumpets were used to draw attention to important events. For the most part, they were signaling eschatological, that's hard for me to say, events, such as Christ's second ret return. Jesus said, the Son of Man will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his chosen ones from the four winds from the end of the earth to one end of the earth to the other in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. The next portion of that scripture says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, why does he say it that way? Because not all the dead are going to rise, but only the dead in Christ. Those who have made Christ the Lord of their lives. This will not include Old Testament believers, but only church age believers. Church age believers, who are they? Those are the folks that came to believe on Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given until the rapture, the event we're talking about today. There are several resurrections that will take place in the end time. But this, at this point, the rapture is going to just be church age believers. The next part of the verse says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Clouds in both the Old Testament and New Testament are associated with the presence of God. Remember how the mountain, they followed the cloud, and when Moses was on the mountain, there was the cloud on the mountain. It says that we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Notice it does not say Jesus, as I said before, is, is coming to put his feet on the ground. He's coming to get his church. But after the tribulation, he returns with his church and establish his kingdom the rapture is different than what is referred to as the day of the lord i think sometimes paul doesn't mention heaven here but he simply says the presence of god and to comfort one another with these words 
with all the events of the past year, many question, uh, have questions about the future of our world and the church and Israel and all these things. It's an ever-changing, explosive world. We, we could hardly imagine several years ago all the things we've faced in the last year and how things have happened. It's natural for people to wonder about Christ's return and natural for them to return uh, wonder about the rapture. There's an expectation in the world today that Jesus' returning could be very soon to rapture his church to heaven. According to a recent Newsweek poll, 55% of Americans think the faithful will be taken to heaven. Over half the country believes in the event known as the rapture. While many believe they're not sure or not clear about the details, and they get confused over the differing views. Some even say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. There's a guy that, where I work, it's was asking one of his bosses about it, and he said, oh, there's nothing to that. That's just not real. And people say it's not even in the Bible. While, uh, well, neither is the word Trinity, and neither is the word Bible in the Bible. So there you go. The term rapture is derived from the phrase caught up, which is in this verse, we're ta- this scripture we're talking about today. It's the Greek word harpezo, which means to snatch, to seize, or to take suddenly. It appears 13 times in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11 verse 12, Matthew 11 or 13 verse 19, John 6:15, John 10:12, Acts 8:39, which is interesting, which is a a story where P- Philip is snatched up by the spirit and carried to a totally different location 20 miles away. That same phrase, that same word harpezo is used for his being caught up and carried away. Paul describes being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. So in 1 Jude one twenty three, it also uses the same word. And in Revelations chapter 12, verse 5, harpezo refers to Jesus' ascension into heaven. And in the same word that we're talking about here in verse 17 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Our word rapture is derived from the Latin in the 4th century A.D., the, the scholar Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin and the word harpezo into rapteus. The Latin word rapio, which is the root word of rapteus, I'm probably not saying any of these right, is to uh, snatch or to seize, and that is how we got the word rapture. It became the English word rapture. So what is a rapture? What is it? Let's talk about that. The rapture is the first phase of Christ's return, or his second coming. It's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. There are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. Think about that. It's imminent. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled. It is the resurrection of the righteous. It is one of a number of resurrections, as I said earlier, which will include the resurrection of the Old Testament believers, believers who died during the tribulation period, and a resurrection of the unrighteous. When the rapture occurs, Jesus will return to earth with the perfected spirits of the believers who have died and raise up their now glorified bodies from the grave and reunite them. Christianity nowhere teaches that physical death is the destruction or the annihilation of the individual. 
whether they believe or whether they don't believe in Christ. People will never cease to exist. Their spirits will still go on. When we physically die, there is a part of us that was created in the image of God. Our spirit goes to God. This body is buried and put in a grave. When Jesus returns, those bodies, he's going to glorify those bodies and take that spirit and put it back in it. According to applying this understanding that we're talking about here today, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died spiritually. They became separated from God. And because they are the fathers of our humanity, they became sinners. And then we all became sinners because our parents were sinners. I like what Watchman Nee says. I love this phrase. He says, we don't sin because we're sinners. No, I got that backwards. We don't. Anyway, basically what he's saying is we sin because we're sinners because our parents were sinners. In other words, I'm a Klein because my father was a Klein. He's a Klein because his father was a Klein. You're whoever you are because of your father's last name. And Adam and Eve became sinners, so we all became sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. There is none righteous. That's why we need a Savior. So applying this understanding about separation and spiritual death to physical death means that when a person dies physically, there is a separation between the material body and the immaterial spirit of the person. When this separation takes place, the physical body dies or falls asleep and is buried. And the spirit goes immediately, if he's a believer, into the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians... Chapter 5, verse 8, Philippians 123, uh, it talks about the, this very thing. It, it verifies what I just told you. Between a believer's death and the resurrection of the righteous or the rapture, the believer lives in a disembodied state that Paul likens to be, being naked. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says that he would rather be with Christ than to be here. The Bible is clear that when a believer dies, his or her soul goes immediately into the conscious presence of Christ. Likewise, the unbeliever's spirit at death goes to a waiting place of suffering called Hades or hell. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 26 about this. And I'm going to read the story to you. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him into Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell in the King James Version, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received 
bad things. But now he is comforted, and here you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. It is a place of immediate torment, but it is not their final destination for the unbeliever. Their final destination is a place called the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, John said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the book according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a place of forever suffering. Urban Lutzer, who's a, I love to read his books. He was pastor for Moody Church in Chicago for 36 years. He said, if you're a believer in Christ, the present life is as bad as it's ever going to be for you. But if you're not a believer in Christ, the presence, the present life that you're living is as good as it's ever going to get. Because on the other side, it's going to be terrible. It is said there's a gravestone in London of a man named Solomon Pease. And it reads like this. Here lies the body of Solomon Pease, under the grass and under the trees. But Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went to God. That's so cute, but it so signifies and, and, and the very thing that happens to the believer. Here's the basic, basic truth everybody needs to understand. When we die, immediately we immediately begin experiencing God's blessing or God's judgment. While it's true that at some future day believers will change location from the third heaven to the new heaven and the new earth, unbelievers will also change location from Hades or hell into the lake of fire. A change of location is not the same as a change in eternal destiny. Heaven and hell are eternal choices. If you wait until you die to choose your destination, you'll have waited one second too long. Hell and heaven are forever choices. But many ask, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know if I'm going to heaven or hell or the lake of fire? In 1 John 5.13, the Apostle John wrote, These things have I written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. In verse 12, John said, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. In other words, the way to know that if you're eternally secure is do you have the Son. Some people say, I don't know about my eternal destination until the day I die and I, find, I wake up and I find out where I'm going to be. Am I in heaven or am I in hell? Then I'll know whether I have eternal life. Actually, no, that's too late. That decision needs to be made today. The fact is, everybody's going to live forever. 
It doesn't matter if you believe in Christ or not. The Bible says we're eternal beings. It's the location. Location, location. That's what they always say, isn't it? It's location that makes the difference. Eternal life is not a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. It's the quality of life that Jesus talked about that, that Sister Connie mentioned this morning in John chapter 10, 10. When he said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is a life that's filled with joy and contentment. A life that's marked by obedience to God. A life filled with the desire to know God better. A life that demonstrates self-control. A life marked by love to other people. A life that forgives rather than engages in bitterness. That's eternal life Jesus was talking about here. And John said the best way to know whether you're saved is to ask yourself, do I have that life? Eternal life is not something you get when you die. It's something you're supposed to be living right now. The proof of your salvation is not in your feeling. It's tangible fruit in your life. Remember earlier when I taught that Paul was saying three things? That a true relationship with God involves a personal relationship with Jesus, sound doctrine, and a changed life. Do you have a desire to know God? Is that fruit being produced in your life? That's the evidence that you have, a, have the life-giving Spirit of God. If there is no fruit, there is no spirit. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test or examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? What did he mean by test yourself? Paul wasn't talking about a theological exam, how much you knew about Christ. He was talking about testing your obedience to God. Paul echoed what James said in James chapter 2, verse 4, 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can faith save him? Absolutely not. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The Bible is clear. Faith without works is dead non-existent faith the way to know whether you are eternally secure is this do you have evidence of that eternal life right now john said these things i've written to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life do you know that you have eternal life are you absolutely sure you can begin eternal life today by asking christ into your life surrendering to him confessing that you have sinned we all have sinned that you need a Savior. Tell him that you believe he died for your sins and rose from the grave. Ask him to forgive you and come into your life today. Then tell someone in your family, your friends, or your circle of friends, make a confession of that faith. Begin to study the Bible and fill your life with the truth. We live in a deceptive world. A very deceptive world. And the only way you and I can pass the test is to fill our lives with truth. 
with the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That doesn't mean he's one of several different kinds of truths. He said, I am the truth. That's it. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to eternal life. And this is, he is the living word, and this is the written word. How can you prevent being deceived? You know, Jesus said there's going to be a lot of people come to him in Matthew. He said there's going to be a lot of people come to me in that day and say, Master, haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? And what did he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Let's examine ourselves daily. Are we producing life? Is God's Spirit producing fruit in us? Let's not be deceived. Let's put this in our heart. Let's put truth down in our heart. I really believe we're close to the rapture. I believe it could happen any moment. And I want to ask you this. How are you going to feel if you didn't make the effort to reach your loved ones and they don't make it? You got children, grandchildren like I do? You got brothers, sisters, family? You don't want them to miss out on this. Let's this thing is real, folks. It's not a game, it's not religious tradition. It's about eternity. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your plan. We're so thankful that we don't have to screw up our willpower and try to earn our way into heaven, that you've paid our price fully. All we have to do is surrender and follow you. I pray this morning, Father, that you'd search our hearts, revive us. We have sinned against you in this nation so horribly, Father, and we repent. We ask your forgiveness, God, for the millions that we've aborted, for the sins that we have glorified, that you've called an abomination. We repent this morning as a church, Lord. We ask for your grace and your mercy. And we know that your word is faithful. You've promised, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, that you would hear and heal us. Save our children. Save the children in this church, Lord. Save our loved ones. Let us be alert. Let us not be asleep, for that trumpet could sound at any moment. We thank you for your word. Bless us today as we... Take this day to worship and honor you in Jesus' name.